Well, good morning again, soon to be Summit Point Church. I am Mitch Tucker. I am the high school pastor here, thrilled and humbled to have the opportunity to, to bring the word today. Well, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you would know that we are in the middle of a summer series called All Authority. We spent the last few weeks talking about that Jesus Christ, he is in control. And he has all authority. He has all authority over sickness. He has authority over darkness. And praise him, he has authority over our sins. And last week, Pastor Tim talked about that he has the authority to build his church. He is the cornerstone. He is the rock. And today we'll spend a little bit of time talking about how Jesus Christ, he has the authority to give away and dispense that authority. So we're going to be jumping back into the book of Mark, chapter 3, we'll be starting in, in verse 7. We've spent a little bit of time in, in, in Mark chapters 1 and 2, so let's catch up just a, just a little bit before we get to uh, uh, verse 7 in chapter 3. So the first couple chapters of Mark, we see Jesus entering uh, synagogues in Galilee. And the individuals were amazed at his teaching because he taught with one who had authority. He taught as one who was in charge. We see him healing people who, who come to him with sicknesses and diseases. We, we see him casting out demons of people who were oppressed by satanic forces. A lot of times he, he did these miracles on the Sabbath, which irritated the religious leaders of the day. So much so that the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus in his words, asking them questions that they thought might stump him. And he'd stumble through an answer, then they've got him. They, were, they would be able to question his authority. Well, the plan's not going so well. Because we get to chapter 3, verse 6, and it says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. See, they're about to, to, to ratchet up their strategy. They understand that it's not going so well. We're, we're not able to trap Jesus in his answers, in his words. And so we have to make this a little bit more severe. It's time to change the strategy, not by asking questions, but he's gotta, we, we have to get rid of him. And so with Jesus' ministry growing, the crowds are coming from all over the place. His opposition is turning to more and more severe strategies. We get to our first point here today. Our first point is this. Recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Let's start here in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Let's just land there for a moment. So Jesus, he, he, with, he withdraws. He, he gets away from um, his typical scene. And he starts to take off on the, the Sea of Galilee. But this time he brings um, a number of his followers. At this point... Disciples is a, is a fairly generic term of just his, his general group of, of followers. He has not set apart the 12 yet. That's coming here. That's in our passage this morning. 
But his, his general group of, of followers, some would come and go, some would stay a little bit longer, but he, he brought his followers along with them. And it was the, the typical scene as he takes off, the crowd is not that far behind. In chapter 1, Mark talks about how, how Jesus' fame is spreading, but it says that he was, his fame is spreading in the surrounding regions of Galilee. So by the time we get to chapter 3, Mark's, Mark wants to make it incredibly clear that, hey, the numbers are getting bigger, and where they're coming from is from farther places. And so he gives specific regions or even cities. He says they're still coming from Galilee. There's some coming now from farther south than Judea where the crucial city of Jerusalem is. They're even coming from farther south from that, from the land of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, right, and Edomia, even farther east of the Jordan River, from beyond the Jordan, and even farther north from Galilee in the Mediterranean coastal sea cities of Tyre and Sidon. It's not just in the region of Galilee anymore where the crowds are coming from. The crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and they're coming from farther and farther away. And as a typical pursuit, the great crowd follows and finds him. And they came to him because they heard of all that he was doing, the sicknesses that he was healing. And verse 9 says, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many. So let all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So Jesus met with his security team he said, guys, uh, we have to come up with a different exit strategy here, right? Because as they come again, they're coming from farther away. There's more and more of them. And they're all coming from my right and to my left and in front of me and behind me. Not too long ago, they came from above and they were li literally ripping off the roof and coming down <laughs> and coming from above. So we need to come up with a little bit of a, a different strategy here. Let's, let's keep a boat ready. Let's, uh, let's stay by the Sea of Galilee in case it gets a little bit too intense. We've, we have a little bit of an, of an easier escape plan because the buzz is growing and more and more people are coming and they're pressing in to, to be healed. They've heard that he is the great healer. And as they suffer, they come to him. And it says, and whenever the unclean spirits, those would be demons, when they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So with consistency, Jesus shows his authority over the dark forces. And as he casts out demons of people who were oppressed by these satanic forces, we see these demons bowing down in submission to who Jesus Christ is. And they declare out actually statements of truth. Truth statements actually from demons. We know who you are, Jesus. You are the Son of God. And then he shuts their mouth and strictly orders them, speak no further of this. It's very interesting as these demons are cast out by Jesus that their statements are true. We've seen them say, we know who you are. You are the Son of God. We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ. See, as the demons were face to face with the truth of the identity of Jesus Christ, they knew exactly who he is and was. 
Now, simply knowing the truth, though, does not, believe, does not always lead to faith or believing in Jesus Christ. As the demons were face-to-face with the truth of who Jesus Christ is, simply they're overcome by fear and trembling. The book of James says they shudder when they're face-to-face with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And as we all are face-to-face with the identity of Jesus Christ, it does demand an action. We either reject the truth of who Jesus Christ is, or it leads us to believing in him and putting our faith that Jesus is the Son of God. The book of John chapter 20 says this, that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, three weeks ago, Pastor Steve got to preach first after we got back from our high school Belize mission trip, and he got to share a few stories. I've been asked about 50 or 60 times if I'm still puking. I'm good. (laughs) It took me a while. (laughs) But I want to share another story. So our last day of ministry happened to fall on a Sunday. And on a Sunday morning, we we went to one of the the village churches that, that, that we were at, and uh, we, we realized that actually their, their main worship service in Belize is actually on Sunday evenings. When we were there on a Sunday morning. And so we got into uh, age-related smaller groups. And I found myself with a number of, of my students. Um, it was pretty much a, a young adult group. They were a little bit older, actually, than, than my students. They were probably in their, their early 20s. And we walked a few blocks to, uh, to an area school. We were in a little classroom. Um, and we were having just a, an awesome time. We had some discussion questions that we were going over. We, had a, uh, we held our own vacation Bible school for a handful of days, and we were just talking about uh, you know, what we learned for, for those days and just reviewing the, the truths of Jesus Christ. We had a little bit of time left, and so we were just sharing our stories, and we were listening to their stories as well, their testimonies. And then the last person to go was, was a, a young lady named Amanda. And we've seen Amanda a lot during that week. She was probably somewhere in her early 20s. And she was at a lot of the, the different uh, outreach events that, that, uh, that we, uh, uh, we held. And um, to be honest, I, I kind of just assumed because she was at that church so often and knew a lot of the other church members, especially the adults, and was just there that, that she had put her trust in Jesus Christ. But she knew that she had not. And so as we, we walked her within the group, it was a group of about 20, 25 individuals, we walked through the ABCs, right, of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And we started with A, to admit, to admit that you are a sinner and in need of a Savior. And as Amanda spoke, she understood that. She talked about a lot of her past, and she was broken over it as well. And we talked about B, to believe, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is God and has authority over our sin, and to pay the payment of our sin by then dying on the cross, and then defeating forever your sin and death by rising from the dead. You see, she had been face to face with the truth of Jesus Christ and what he had done for her, that was locked down. She knew that, she understood that. 
but there was something that was getting in the way, and she understood that she wasn't over here to see. She had never confessed Jesus as Lord of, of her life, that he was in complete control. So time was running out. We were about to leave. Again, this was our final ministry day, so we didn't know how much more time we had with Amanda. And so we asked the question, Amanda, what, what is it? What is, what is standing in the way between you moving from B to C? Because we have to be very honest here. In between B and C is not saved. You know a lot of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You know he is the Son of God. But in between B and C, Amanda is not saved. And she talked then about her fear of her family. That if she, if she truly did confess Jesus as Lord of her life, that perhaps her family would disown her. And she loved her family. And she knew that her family had a lot of issues. But she was fearful if she made that decision to completely give her life to Jesus Christ, of what would that mean to her earthly relationships and especially her family. Well, unfortunately, it was, it was time to go. And so we had to make the, the two-block walk from the school back to the church. And I asked a couple of our, our female students uh, to walk with her, continue to listen to her, continue to ask her questions, and to pray with her. But there was a moment where we had to leave. And it was tough. I'll be honest with you, it was tough to leave. Because you could tell that she was so close. There was just that, that one that one thing of fear that was standing in the way. And so we had, especially one of our female students, pray with her. And we prayed like crazy for Amanda that night for those next few days. But we had to, we had to leave Belize. We came back here late Tuesday night. Still praying for Amanda. Still on our heart. Then Thursday of that week, she got a hold of, of one of our students and over social media, she said, I just want you to know something. I've locked it down. Jesus Christ, he is my Lord and Savior. There's nothing that separates me anymore. He has handled my fear of my family, what's going to happen. I know I've been face to face with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is my Lord. He's in control. Amen. But that's Amanda's story. Church, what is your story? There are hundreds of people in this room. You all have a unique story of where you are at with Jesus Christ. And as you're face to face with the truth of who he is, Jesus is the Son of God, and there is no other name by which we can be saved. Are you somewhere between A and B or in between B and C? I'm going to say the same thing that I said to Amanda, in between is not saved. If you have any doubt of where you stand with Jesus Christ, do not leave this room until you know. Not even just, not even leave this building, but do not leave this room until you lock it down. Face to face with the truth of the identity of Jesus Christ, it demands an action. You can continue trusting yourself or something else. You can say, 
Jesus, you've got my entire life. If you have any doubt, we would love to help you and walk you through confessing Jesus as Lord of your life. So there's again another invitation to come up here. Whatever pastor or elder is, is up here this morning, we would love to sit down and show you the love of Jesus Christ and help you through that. So where are you at right now with Jesus Christ? As we cling to this truth that salvation is found nowhere else except in Jesus Christ, we move on to point two. Point two is this. Be obedient to whatever he calls you. Be obedient to whatever he calls you. We're here in verse 13. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus says, hey, we've got to get away from the crowds for a little bit, because we have something very important to do. And he takes this general group of followers, and it says that he desires and he appoints specifically 12 of them, 12 of them to be my inner circle of followers. His 12 apostles. And the words desire and appoint and indicate and indicates that it was incredibly intentional. Jesus did not line up his, his general group of followers from shortest to tallest and then just pick every 10th person. No, this was incredibly calculated. He spent a lot of time in prayer to the Father, saying, Lord, I want to follow your will. What 12 men do you want me to choose to be my apostles? And he chooses these 12 specific men very intentionally. So brings them up into a mountain and calls them and says that he, they, they came to him. They were obedient to his calling. And he gives them three initial purposes. Three initial purposes as he calls them to be his apostles. Number one, he says, I'm calling you to be with me. And on the surface, that doesn't seem like much, but that's actually incredibly, incredibly intense. Because when he says that I'm calling you out so that you are to be with me, that means to be with me in every single possible way. To be as close of a reflection of who I am as possible. To say the things that I say, to do the things that I do. This isn't just, hey, we're going to share a few meals uh, during the week and we'll spend most of the weekend together. No, this is to become like me in every way. That's number one. Number two says that I'm going to send you out to preach. Jesus has been preaching. He has the same message. He says, I'm going to send you out with that same truth. Mark 119, Jesus is preaching. He says this. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. This is my message of truth. And you're going to say the same things that I've said. That's number two. Number three is this. He's going to give authority, his authority, to cast out demons in his name. They've seen him do this. And so as my 12 apostles, you're going to become like me. You're going to say the things that I've said, and you're going to also do the things in my name that I've done that you've seen me do as well. So when Mark goes into detailing, he actually lists out their names Verse 16, he says, he appointed the 12. There it is again, all right? The word appointed. Everyone say, God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. It's not a random selection. 
Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. His 12 apostles that, again, he was very intentional, very specific. These are the 12 men who are going to become my inner circle of followers. And I'm going to give them a plan, and I'm going to give them a purpose. They're going to say what I say. They're going to do what I do in my name. But as you look at this list, and you start to know a little bit of these 12 individuals' lives and, and their character, we start to develop a very long list of limitations and weaknesses. Let's just take a few uh, as an example. Let's start with Peter. Last week, Peter had this awesome moment in Matthew chapter 16 where he declares, Jesus, we know who you are. You are the Christ. Awesome moment. Great time of leadership of, from Peter. Do you know what the very next passage is in Matthew 16? In typical Peter fashion, he tries, he tries to get ahead of Jesus. And Jesus is, is talking with his apostles, and he's, he's starting to talk about his upcoming plan. He's going to suffer, and ultimately he's going to die. And it says that, that Peter takes him off to the side, and it says that Peter rebukes Jesus. Everyone say, that's a bad plan. <laughs> and Peter says, you've got to be wrong, Jesus. And, you know, let's, 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 let's try to figure this out together. You know, I'm sure with my help, you know, we can figure out a better plan, right, Jesus? Your, your plan has got some flaws, right? Let's, let's, let's figure this thing out together. Gets out ahead of Jesus. Church, let's, let's, let's be a group of followers of Jesus Christ that are good at following him. Not good, of, good at of, of trying to get out ahead of him as, he, as if he's going to follow us. He's going to lead. Let's be good followers. And it says Jesus actually has to rebuke him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Peter, in one of Jesus' most, most dire circumstances, after he's arrested, he melts at the question of even a small child who questions if, if Peter knows Jesus, and he denies him. Three times. I never knew the guy. Let's take James and John, the sons of thunder. Oh, James and John. In Mark 10, we have this scene where they again take Jesus aside <laughs> because they've got a plan. And they try to kind of weasel their way into positions of authority and positions of power and what they believe is the upcoming kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. And so they ask Jesus the question, hey, do you, why, don't, why doesn't one of us sit to your right and why doesn't the other one sit to, to the left, Jesus, in, in your, the, the kingdom that you're going to establish? And Jesus has to demiss even the question. The other 10 apostles find out and it says they became indignant to James and John, a very selfish request. Matthew Matthew's a traitor tax collector. He works for the enemy, the Roman government. Bartholomew has a goofy name that's hard for me to pronounce. A lot of limitations and weaknesses. And then obviously Judas Iscariot takes the cake, right? 
sells Jesus out, shows his captors where he's at and gives them a kiss along with it. So this week I, I wrote down just uh, five big characteristics as I was thinking about the weaknesses and the limitations of this highly intentional, picked inner circle of followers of Jesus Christ. Number one, all right, time and time again, they are dense. They're dense. In Mark 8, Jesus has to question the disciples. says, do, do, you, do you not yet understand? They were complaining about not having enough bread. It wasn't that long ago that Jesus fed 5,000 plus people with just a few loaves and some fish, and they're complaining about not having a lot of enough bread. And Jesus asks the question, don't you yet understand? Haven't you seen me? Don't you know who I am yet? Don't you know my authority? I will provide for you. They were dense. Number two, they were selfish at times. We already talked about James and John, very selfish questions, looking out for themselves. They also had tendency of be, tendencies of being deceptive as well. Judas, he was in charge of the money. He painted a picture of himself that, hey, I am trustworthy. I'll take the group's money and be charged of that. Deceptive. Number three, they were inconsistent. Peter, in these great moments, steps out of the boat, walks on water to Jesus, and then the next moment takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to sink. Inconsistent faith. The last one that I wrote down is they were uneducated. They were not the cream of the crop academically. Some of them were, were just simple fishermen, tradesmen. So as you look at this highly intentional and selected group of the inner circle of the followers of Jesus Christ, and you realize their long list of weaknesses and limitations, they're dense, they're selfish, sometimes they can be deceptive, they're inconsistent, and they're uneducated. You have to wonder, what was Jesus thinking here? What's going on? This is not the cream of the crop. There's so many weaknesses. There's so many limitations. The point is this. That Jesus Christ is so easily in control. Jesus Christ has authority over all that he can even fulfill his plan and his will by not having to do all of it himself, and he could, but he desires and he chooses to fulfill his plan and his will using even in spite of the weaknesses and the limitations of his sons and daughters. That is our God. He is that big and he is that easily in control. He doesn't have to do it all himself. He can still fulfill all of his purposes even working through the selfishness, the pride, the weaknesses and limitations of his sons and daughters. It might not look on the surface that it makes sense, but Jesus has full authority. So this past week, Pastor Steve talked about that this was vacation Bible school. If you've ever been a part of vacation Bible school, you know that our grade schoolers, first through sixth grade, they, they start here, and we have something called large group leaders. And so every grade has a, at least two large group leaders, and they're the one that welcomes them at the door. They check them in, and they uh, make sure that they're, they're wearing a certain colored uh, wristband, and they walk them down, and they introduce them to their small group leader, and they show them where they're going to sit. It's the, one of the first faces that they see. And every single grade 
had at least one mom as a large group leader. And there's something that the Lord has, has, has given to mothers that as, as young kids come in and they're a little bit nervous and they're a little bit timid, that there's something nurturing that God gives all mothers that starts to just calm that first grader's nerves and reminds them, hey, well, you're going to have an awesome time at VBS. I'm going to check in. I know that you're here. And I'm going to show you to the exact seat of where you're going to be at. All the grades had this nurturing um, figure, except for one grade. One grade didn't quite look the part on the surface. Poor second graders. This is what they had to look. It'll be introduced to you. <laughs> this is me and Darren Fry. I'm sorry, parents of second graders. <laughs> if some of your second graders were a little bit nervous to come back to VBS the next day and were crying about it, it may have been <laughs> the opposite of, of nurturing motherly. But although we, maybe not on the surface, it, it, it looked like we fit that calling to be with those second graders for those four days, God still used the limitations and the weaknesses of all the hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. And our second graders, as they went from station to station, they heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And we had a good handful of those second graders say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm locking it down. I am face to face with the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and he is my Lord. He's in control. You see, Jesus is so easily in control, and he has all authority. He can still accomplish his plans. He can still spread his message of his gospel of love, even when on the surface his plan doesn't make much sense because it has a lot of weaknesses and limitations to it. So perhaps a lot of you are thinking, you know, what else did God do at VBS? How else did God use the volunteers? How else did, you know, what was God's plan for those four days of VBS? We'll go ahead and check the screen.
Amen, amen. So, what is God calling you to do? We all in this room have our list of weaknesses and limitations. Where is he calling you? Where is he calling you? Maybe in your home, in your workplace, maybe even here. Where is he calling you? In spite of your list of weaknesses and limitations, he wants to show that he still has authority, that he can use you. In spite of that list, he is in control. As you're pondering those things, let's finish out our section here. Let's get to our, our final and third point. Third point is this. Approach Jesus with high hope, not shame. Approach Jesus with high hope, not shame. After he selected his 12 apostles, it says, then he went home. This is actually in Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So he gets to his home base in Capernaum. And again, the crowds find him. They're crowded in. So much so that can't even eat. His family takes the 30-mile trek from Nazareth, his mother, his half-brothers, and they look at the scene. And you think, you know, his, his mother and his, his, his brothers are, are there. Maybe, maybe Mary has, has made, you know, maybe his favorite dish. His brothers are going to come and give him a big hug. But that's not the scene at, at all. They're ashamed of him. They look at the scene and... and they start to talk to each other and say, he can't even take care of himself. He's not even taking time to eat. This is getting way, way out of hand. And it says that they, they went to, to seize him. It's the Greek word krateo. It means a forceful and powerful arresting. It's the same word we see as, as John the Baptist is arrested. It's a powerful, forceful. We have to take... Jesus by force, we have to bring him back to Nazareth and he needs to go through some sort of rehab. This has gotten way out of hand. We know what's best for Jesus. We know what's best for him. He can't even take care of himself. He's not even eating now. We have to go save him from what he's doing because he's not thinking right. So much so that, that Jesus has to say about his is regarding that his earthly family was embarrassed of him. He has to say this a few verses later. It says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Because his earthly family, they were ashamed of him. They were embarrassed of him. Did not approach him with high hope and saw who he is and what his plans were and rejoice and praise him. But they were ashamed. So it was about four and a half years ago that I did something that I had done thousands and thousands of times before in the exact same way. I was playing volleyball over at the Riverplex in Peoria, and I got set a ball, and I took my approach to jump and to try to spike the ball. I've been playing volleyball seemingly my, my, my entire life. I played in college. Just yesterday, I played in a tournament in St. Louis. Yes, it was crazy hot. But I had done the same motions countless times. And it was the same steps I, I have taken before, the same force trying to get off the ground. But this time, as I 
planted my feet and tried to jump. I didn't get anywhere. I actually went straight down. And I completely ruptured my Achilles tendon. I had to have surgery. I was scooting around here on a little knee scooter for a couple months. You see, the thing is that in this life, we want certain things to always be constant. And we can work really hard at those things. And we can put a lot of time and effort. I had done that same approach to spike that volleyball thousands and thousands of times, but a lot of people in this room can identify, and it doesn't matter how much work you put in, at some point, your body, as you get older, will disappoint you. <laughs> and will weaken, or sometimes, it will break. And there's a lot of times that we, we try to hope in things that we wish were constant. We hope our friendships are constant. One of the biggest things that, as a high school pastor, I, I talk about, friendships are a big deal. And friendships definitely make the, the list of, of being important. But when we, we hope, with a high hope, that our friends are always going to be consistent and constant, there will be at some point where you're disappointed. That friend may just move away. That friend is a sinner. They might exclude you from something, maybe not even intentionally. You'll be offended. You'll be hurt. You'll be confused. They're not going to be constant. It's always changing. Those friendships are a lessening that even sometimes will be greater intensity, but they're always changing. At some point, it's going to let you down. The person that I love the most, apart from Jesus Christ, is my wife, Sarah. And she is the person that I probably disappoint the most and frustrate the most. Because no matter how hard I work to be a, an, an awesome husband for her, I'm not constant. And I have bad days. And I'm grumpy sometimes. And sometimes I don't get that early morning cup of coffee. And I can't be your constant. But in our Savior, we can approach him with high hope because we know who we're going to get every single time. He is immutable, meaning, meaning that he is unchanging. He doesn't have off days. He never gets tired. He never shows any weakness because he's perfect so there's a lot of things that we can try to hope in that is going to have the same level of consistency as Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, church, there will be at some point that that either changes or ends or disappoints. But our Savior never disappoints. As we approach him, we can have full assurance and confidence that when he speaks, he's never going to deceive us. He's never going to lead us astray. The word says that it is impossible for God to lie. So that when he speaks and he has spoken in his word, that his promises and what he has spoken to us, we can fully trust and rely upon. It says that he will never deceive us, nor can he be deceived himself. So we run and we cling to Jesus Christ like nothing else and no one else, because it is only Jesus Christ where we find our one and only constant in this life. He always fulfills. He always satisfies. Because he is always 100% who he is at all. 
times. So with full assurance, we can approach him with high hope, unlike anything else or anyone else. Pray with me, church. 